This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm Stephen Colebrook. Today I'll be speaking with Mark Stein, author of Sexual Injustice, Supreme Court Decisions from Griswold to Roe. In this book, Stein revises our understanding of how the Supreme Court responded to the sexual revolution of the 1960s. While historians often argue that the court was a liberal force during this decade, Stein shows that court opinions upheld a heteronormative sexual doctrine which prioritised monogamous marriage. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Great. So I'd like to begin by asking you about your own intellectual background and what brought you to the topic of the 1960s Supreme Court. Well, I was uh, an undergraduate uh, university student in the first half of the 1980s, graduating with a degree in history and concentrating in European history uh, in 1985. Uh, Then I was out of school for four years, uh, during which time I really came out as gay, got very involved in the gay movement, uh, ended up as the editor of a national gay newspaper based in Boston called Gay Community News and was very involved in in AIDS activism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the end, I decided to head off to graduate school uh, in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania uh, 1989. And uh, knowing that I wanted to work on the history of sexuality, on LGBT history, on the history of social movements, and on the history of the post-World War II era, Uh, One of my advisors was Mary Frances Berry, who uh, then was a member and later became the chair of the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. So I did take a a legal history seminar with her, Mm. and that was really the first time I began to write about uh, the central Supreme Court decision in my book, uh, The Boudelier versus the Immigration and Naturalization Service Case. Great. So um, your book obviously concerns the 1960s Supreme Court. Could you give us some background on what the court was like during this decade and also how the justices themselves interacted with the changes wrought by the sexual revolution? Sure, sure. Um, well, uh, I teach constitutional law uh, uh, and I usually uh, uh, end up emphasizing to my students how through much of American history, the Supreme Court was quite a conservative branch of the federal government. Um, And that was true through much of the 19th century. It was true um, for the most part in the early 20th century. But really, um, the court began to change and it principally changed in the 30s and 40s because uh, there was 20 years of uninterrupted Democratic Party rule uh, where Presidents Roosevelt and then Truman uh, uh, were in the position to appoint um, 
a majority of the Supreme Court justices, eventually all of the Supreme Court justices. And it's an interesting aspect of the U.S. political system that the presidents have a very powerful delayed effect uh, on federal policymaking and federal law because their justices are appointed for life. Um, And so it was really the Roosevelt and Truman uh, appointees in the 30s and 40s who uh, transformed the Supreme Court into a very liberal branch of the federal government in the 1950s and 1960s. You know, we commonly associate um, an early moment in that uh, development with uh, Brown versus Board of Education, the school desegregation decision in 1954 and 1955. So by the 1960s, uh, the court was uh, issuing liberal decision after liberal decision on um, uh, the civil rights movement, on civil rights issues, on racial equality, uh, on the rights of criminal defendants, on voting rights. Uh, so um, the court, in the very broad um, uh, view of things, was at its most liberal during the, the late 1950s and 1960s. Um, but, you know, as I try to point out in my book, that's not necessarily the case for uh, its approach to uh, sex discrimination and women's equality um, and also uh, sexual rights and freedoms. Uh, so that's really where my book begins. The general picture we have of a liberal Supreme Court, but then the um, questions that we can raise about that when we look at marriage, reproduction and sexuality. Great. So uh, just moving on to the actual cases themselves, um, how did decisions we often view as liberal and as part of the sort of uh, the liberal court you've just described uh, actually end up prioritizing heterosexual marriage? Right. So so the book essentially focuses on six uh, Supreme Court decisions. Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965, which is about birth control. Fanny Hill, an, an important obscenity decision in 1966. Loving versus Virginia about interracial marriage in 67. Boudelier versus INS, a uh, gay immigration case in 67. Eisenstadt versus Baird, another birth control case. And then Roe versus Wade in 1973, the well-known abortion rights decision. Uh, and five of those six decisions were um, liberalizing. Uh, and those covered areas like birth control, interracial marriage, um, obscenity, and abortion. The exception, um, though I argue it wasn't such an exception, was Boudelier versus the INS, which was a very conservative anti-gay ruling. So the question is a good one. You know, why is it that I then argue that those liberalizing decisions were actually quite limited and in many respects quite conservative? Um, well, I think uh, if we look at a decision like Griswold versus Connecticut, uh, uh, this was not, in fact, a case about birth control rights for everyone. It was very specifically a decision about birth control rights for married couples. Uh, that's how the lawyers positioned the case. They made sure that the women supplied birth control at the New Haven Birth Control Clinic were married. The lawyers argued um, using um, um, precedents that concern the rights of married people. They argued that marital privacy was protected by the Constitution. 
Uh, and uh, so uh, if we look carefully at the language of the majority and concurring opinions, we see that the court took pains to say that laws against fornication, adultery, homosexuality, all remained constitutional, but that this case concerned rights of marital privacy. So right from the start um, in this series of decisions, the Supreme Court uh, drew a very clear dividing line between rights that would be protected, and I argue those were uh, the rights of, uh, related to uh, marriage, reproduction, uh, monogamous relationships, etc. Um, those were clearly distinguished from um, uh, other kinds of uh, other forms of uh, sexual expression, uh, and uh, we see that language in these liberalizing decisions. So, you know, I make a similar set of arguments about all of the other decisions. So, to take another example, in Fanny Hill, the obscenity ruling, again, the court took pains to say obscenity was not protected by the Constitution. It's just that in this case, the court ruled that Fanny Hill was not obscene. Uh, and in distinguishing between what would be found obscene and what would not be found obscene, the court used language about community standards and what the majority might view as prurient. Um, and in later obscenity decisions, the court made clear that it would apply different standards to sexual materials that were oriented to heterosexuals and sexual materials that were oriented to quote unquote homosexuals. So through all these liberalizing decisions, we see conservative and limiting language. Okay, so one of the cases you mentioned there, Baudelaire, is really at the heart of your book. Could you briefly describe uh, for our listeners the background of this case? Sure, sure. That's the Boudelier uh, decision. And for those who are wondering about my pronunciation, because it looks like it, it ought to be pronounced Boutillier, um, Clive Boudelier was from the Canadian province of Nova Scotia, which has uh, a large population of people who are of French descent, but who have long since abandoned um, French language. And so when I uh, corresponded with the family, they uh, let me know that they pronounced the family name Boudelier. And so I, I follow suit. Um, so the Boudelier case uh, centrally concerned a 1952 Act of Congress, uh, an immigration statute that declared that um, immigrants afflicted with psychopathic personality would be excluded from the United States and would be subject to deportation from the United States. So the key phrase was afflicted with psychopathic personality. Uh, and Congress had discussed when debating this law whether uh, it should um, enact an explicit uh, exclusion of quote-unquote homosexuals. Uh, and there was some discussion about uh, how homosexuality was understood by many psychiatrists and medical experts as psychopathological. Uh, and so for some interpreters of the law, uh, there was clear intent on the part of Congress to apply um, this provision to uh, homosexual immigrants. So Clive Boudelier, um, uh, uh, in 1955, immigrated to the United States. He moved to New York, as did his mother and several of his siblings. At the time, he was uh, 21 years of age. Um, so he was, uh, after that, a legal resident uh, in the United States. Uh, in 1963, eight years later, he applied for citizenship. And at the time, one of the questions on the citizenship application um, concerned um, uh, arrest records. Uh, and um, uh, at that time, 
Boudelier uh, answered honestly and indicated that he had been arrested but not convicted um, of sodomy in New York City in 1959. So midway through the eight years that he had been living um, in the United States, four years after he entered and four years before he applied for citizenship. Uh, and with that evidence, with that admission, uh, the Immigration and Naturalization Service uh, then not only denied his citizenship application, but initiated deportation proceedings. Uh, so they took an affidavit from him in 1964. So much of the evidence in the case uh, comes from that affidavit. In 1965, the INS issued a deportation order. Uh, at this point, Boudelier uh, made sure that he had a good set of lawyers, and that's an interesting part of the story. Uh, he had a primary lawyer who was uh, a well-known uh, immigration lawyer whose work generally focused on leftist, communist um, uh, immigrants. And, uh, but alongside her, he had uh, legal briefs from the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, the New York Civil Liberties Union, uh, and the Homosexual Law Reform Society, which was a Philadelphia-based legal advocacy organization and actually was named after a British organization with the same name. Um, and they uh, supplied briefs for the appeal. But in 1966, Boudelier lost by two to one uh, a decision in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Ultimately, the case reached the Supreme Court. And in 1967, the Supreme Court ruled six to three against him. So you mentioned briefly there uh, the role of psychiatrists in sort of redefining homosexuality in the post-war period. Um, what were the sort of implications of both the law passed by Congress and then uh, the upholding of the law by the Supreme Court for how the state defined homosexuality. Right. So uh, there you know, was a long history of the medicalization of homosexuality and the classification of homosexuality as a mental illness. Uh, in the United States, the key text was the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which was basically the American Psychiatric Association's inventory of mental illnesses. And the DSM did classify homosexuality as a mental illness. Uh, the law used the phrase psychopathic personality. Um, and interestingly, by the 1960s, psychiatry was beginning to abandon that language. Uh, it was seen as outdated. It was seen as ambiguous, as vague, as lacking a clear meaning. Um, but uh, the Congress uh, retained the law, retained the language, and the INS continued to use the language in enforcing the law. Uh, so in the Supreme Court decision, the uh, justices um, referenced the psychiatric opinion. Uh, it are, the, the, the justices argued that it was irrelevant that psychiatry was now uh, changing its mind about the pathological status of homosexuality. Uh, the majority stated that what was important was what Congress uh, meant in the early 1950s. So it's a strange and interesting um issue because on the one hand, Congress uh, or the Supreme Court was relying on uh, psychiatric conceptions, but on the other hand, the Supreme Court was saying it actually really doesn't matter what psychiatrists think and believe uh, in 1967. It matters what Congress thought that psychiatry believed back in 1952. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, we can see this as uh, evidence of the power of psychiatric ideas. On the other hand, we can see this as a moment when the court was saying, um, uh, even if the law uses psychiatric language and psychiatric concepts, what ultimately matters is what lawmakers think, not what psychiatrists think. Mm, okay, fascinating stuff. So uh, given that it concerns 
immigration law. What were the implications of this case for sexual regulation at the U.S. border? Yeah, so uh, I very much wanted to uh, interpret Boudelier versus INS as a gay decision but uh, and, and as a sexual freedom decision, but also as an immigration decision. And uh, I think it's fascinating that his primary lawyer was really an immigration advocate. I believe this was her first uh, gay rights case. Uh, and uh, we can see in her arguments, this is a lawyer named Blanche Friedman. She was affiliated with an organization called the American Committee for the Protection of the Foreign Born, which defended a lot of leftist immigrants over the course of several decades uh, who uh, themselves were subject to deportation. And she, uh, at least in my interpretation, used the arguments that she had developed as an immigration lawyer to apply to Boudelier situations. So for example, she made a big deal out of arguing that the law was vague. Well, that was exactly the kind of argument um, that she made when she was defending leftist immigrants. She made a big deal of arguing that uh, immigrants could not be punished for um, uh, behaviors um, pre-entry. Um, and, um, uh, and another set of arguments about uh, why the vagueness of immigration laws uh, were problematic, uh, could be problematic because it didn't give immigrants warning that their behavior post-entry might affect their status in the United States. All of these were the kinds of arguments she made in defending um, uh, leftist immigrants uh, earlier. So, you know, I think it's fascinating as an immigration case, in, you know, in that respect. I think Boudelier versus INS has been kind of left out of the canon of Supreme Court gay rights decisions, precisely because it was an immigration decision. And in that sense, uh, you know, I think quite unfortunately, it's been uh, understood as not directly relevant to um, the majority of U.S. LGBT people. And, and I think that's unfortunate for many reasons. First of all, I think it's quite cavalier and uh, insensitive about the immigrants who live in our midst. But I think also uh, whenever any group of people are understood to be um, ineligible for uh, immigration or citizenship and subject to exclusion or deportation, it, uh, it matters symbolically and culturally for people with the same characteristics living in the country, living in the United States, and uh, their sense of belonging and their sense of inclusion. You know, so it means something uh, for a citizen to say, if I had not been born in this country, I wouldn't even be eligible to be here. Uh, as opposed to other others who can say, uh, even if I had been born elsewhere, I would have been on the preferred list of who should be able to immigrate to the United States. Um, so how did uh, homophile organizations respond to Baudelaire and, and what were the implications of their strategies for the gay rights movement? As a whole, yes, and maybe I'll take the opportunity to go back to one of your earlier questions about my uh, my own intellectual trajectory. So, uh, yeah, for my for my PhD dissertation, I I wrote about uh, LGBT history in Philadelphia, and the result of that project was my first book, City of Sisterly and Brotherly Loves: Lesbian and Gay Philadelphia, uh, 1945 to 1972. And it was while researching uh, the Philadelphia LGBT movement that I learned about this Philadelphia-based organization, the Homosexual Law Reform Society. It was essentially an outgrowth of a homophile group in Philadelphia called the Janus Society, J-A-N-U-S, named after the Roman god. Um, and 
on another level, it actually was kind of a front organization because it was funded by uh, pornographic businesses that a gay rights leader in Philadelphia, Clark Pollock, uh, owned. Uh, and he poured the profits that he made from his porn businesses into very respectable legal organizations that were fighting the good fight in courts. Um, so I learned about the Homosexual Law Reform Society for my Philadelphia project, but I didn't pursue the Boudelier case in great depth um, because it wasn't directly a Philadelphia uh, case. Um, but the my, my second book, the Sexual Injustice book, allowed me the opportunity to look more in depth at the work of the Homosexual Law Reform Society. And so what I learned was that um, initially Boudelier had uh, a lawyer that he had used in earlier uh, litigation. Uh, and it was that lawyer, I think, who realized once uh, he, you know the case hit the big time in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals that he needed the assistance of a, of a more prominent, well-known and experienced immigration lawyer. So that's when they contacted Blanche Friedman, who, as I mentioned earlier, was affiliated with the American Committee for the Protection of the Foreign Born. Well, somehow around that time, uh, the, uh, the, I believe it was Friedman who reached out to the gay rights movement, and she contacted both the Mattachine Society of New York, the leading gay rights organization in New York, uh, and the um, Janus Society and Homosexual Law Reform Society in Philadelphia. And Pollock immediately responded, uh, writing to Blanche Friedman sometimes more than once in one day, offered to fund the case, offered to fund her expenses, uh, offered to produce a brief, uh, and they soon were also working with the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, and so... Um, uh, so we can credit the homophile movement for for funding the litigation in this case, for funding other gay rights uh, cases in the uh, second half of the 1960s, uh, for doing a lot of media appearances that brought attention uh, to uh, this case and others like it, uh, and then for the hard work of putting together a legal brief that was authored by a Philadelphia-based lawyer who's actually straight, uh, Gil Cantor, uh, and um, the that brief focused specifically on the question of was homosexuality a psychopathology? Uh, and it, of course, um, argued that it was not. And it assembled uh, more than two dozen experts who went on record uh, saying that homosexuality should not be regarded as a mental illness, should not be regarded as um, a psychopathic personality. And uh, it you know, proved to be influential with some of the justices, but unfortunately not a majority of the justices. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mm. And how did uh, the strategies used sort of interact with the, the politics of respectability that was so central to the homophile movement? Yes, yes. Well, uh, that was certainly a central interest of mine in my Philadelphia project, uh, and in that project, I looked at both the respectable homophiles, but also the non-respectable homophiles. And interestingly, Clark Pollock uh, and uh, his 
political work in Philadelphia, I argued in my Philadelphia book, really was at the forefront of the the more sexually transgressive, the more politically radical, the more sexually radical uh, factions of the homophile movement. Nevertheless, uh, Pollock and Janice and the Homosexual Law Reform Society knew how to present a respectable face um, in certain contexts. They were very situational about it. And so um, for Boudelier versus INS, uh, all public associations were with the Homosexual Law Reform Society, not with the Janus Society or not with the seedier sides of Pollock's political work. Uh, and the arguments drew on expert opinion, scientific opinion. That is to say, rather than saying um, we gay activists are the experts on homosexuality, which is the, the view uh, that would soon become popular in the 1970s. Um, uh, Pollock and the Brief and Cantor deferred to psychiatric expertise, just looking for respectable uh, experts who would take their side, right? And um, uh, that was one of the principal ways that, you know, that they employed uh, respectable tactics. And then uh, Friedman um, made even more respectable arguments, trying to minimize, for example, Boudelier's history of homosexual activities, uh, emphasizing that he had also had sex with women when he lived in Canada, that is before his entry into the United States. Uh, in the biographical uh, portrait that they presented to the court about Boudelier, they emphasized that he was church going, that he was very close to his family, that his hobbies included bowling. Uh, you know, they certainly made sure to present him as Christian, white, Canadian, male, whose sexual activities were mostly uh, in the recent past uh, in private. They emphasized his long-term relationship with a New York-based man named Eugene O'Rourke. Uh, so um, Blanche Friedman and to some extent the other lawyers involved in the case presented him as um, acceptable. Uh, you know, they also emphasize his brothers were serving in the U.S. military during the Vietnam War. So trying in every way possible to present him as um, a respectable um, uh, a respectable man who deserted, deserved to remain in the United States and potentially in the future become a citizen. Mm, so sort of Americanizing him as much as possible. Um, so how did uh, liberal activists contribute to this uh, heteronormative doctrine? You, you, your sort of book blurs the boundary between conservatism and liberalism in many respects. So how did uh, liberals end up supporting a regime which, which policed homosexuality? Right. So, yeah, the first uh, two chapters of my book looks a look um, specifically at the Supreme Court opinions. But then in the next three chapters, I look at the legal advocates who argued uh, the six cases that I highlighted before. And um, I think uh, many of us might uh, suppose that the American Civil Liberties Union, Planned Parenthood, you know, the other advocates who got involved in all of these decisions would have been making, you know, much more sexually radical arguments, arguing for sexual freedom for all, arguing for birth control for all, arguing for marriage rights for all. But in fact, you know, that's not what we find when we look at the legal briefs. And behind the scenes, we can see their strategy arguments and understand that these were uh, very deliberate strategies. So the, you know, the liberal advocates in Griswold made sure to emphasize that they were only arguing for birth control rights for married people. The liberal advocates in Loving versus Virginia 
did not challenge, uh, of course, the privileged status of um, marriage in American law. They argued for the rights of interracial couples to join this privileged institution um, in American society. Uh, they, uh, the, you know, the, the liberal advocates in Fannie Hill um, made sure to argue that Fannie Hill was a was a well-regarded literary work, uh, and that in fact the novel had a moralistic conclusion uh, that um, was critical of the life of prostitution depicted in the text. Uh, so, um, you know, in case after case, the liberal advocates um, minimized the potential radicalism. Now, you know, I should note, and I try to note in the book that this was absolutely consistent with recommended uh, legal strategy. Uh, these lawyers were trying to win the specific cases they were arguing, and uh, they were um, obliged ethically and professionally to represent the interests of their clients and not necessarily the interests of the larger social movements that were very engaged in these court cases. Uh, so, right. So they weren't they weren't activists, basically. Yeah. I mean, we might characterize some of them as activists. Um, and, uh, you know, the lawyers involved in these various cases included lawyers from the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the Japanese American Citizens League. And as I've mentioned before, Planned Parenthood uh, and um, of the American Civil Liberties Union and in Boudelier, the Homosexual Law Reform Society. So they all had activist connections. But situationally speaking, their role in uh, court was to defend their clients. And, uh, and they're, they're, if, you know, I think if they were on this interview, they would say, you know, that um, as advocates and as activists, uh, establishing a productive precedent m would be useful for future cases where maybe they could push the envelope further. You know, be that as it may, I, I try to argue in the book that they are still accountable for the logic of the arguments that they made, the politics of the arguments that they made. And we see as we you know, follow the, the development of the court in later years that their conservative and limiting language caused damage when subsequently there were court decisions that uh, asked for broader rights and that tried to deepen the um, the, the uh, meaning of these decisions. And um, by using these more conservative arguments uh, uh, and getting the justices to agree with those more conservative arguments, that also became part of the precedent. So, you know, ultimately we see in later decades, the Supreme Court uh, grabbing onto the language in this set of decisions, in the decisions from 65 to 73, and saying, look, we never said there was sexual freedom for all. We said that married people had special rights. We said that um, heterosexuals have marriage rights. We said that uh, reproductive rights are not the same thing as sexual rights. And, you know, the court would later use the language of the late 60s and early 70s rulings to um, to justify profoundly anti-gay rulings and rulings that really did damage to sexual freedom and sexual equality. Mm, okay, so given given those strategies that you outline, uh, why have existing accounts highlighted the liberalizing aspects of rulings from the 1960s whilst also ignoring the conservative legal doctrine that you describe? 
Right. And in the in the last two chapters of my book, I, I, I look at uh, kind of the afterlife of these decisions and uh, examine the way that uh, all six of these decisions uh, have been interpreted. So there's a short term story, I think, and then maybe a longer term story. The short term story is that um, when these decisions were um, reported on in the press, uh, in law reviews uh, and uh, in other contexts, uh, they were very frequently um, uh, described in ways that uh, presented a much more sexually libertarian and sexually egalitarian um, interpretation of what the Supreme Court had done. So, for example, uh, in these decisions, the Supreme Court never endorsed sexual privacy. They endorsed reproductive privacy, they endorsed marital privacy, but never sexual privacy. Nevertheless, the journalists who were reporting on these decisions described these as decisions that endorsed sexual privacy, sexual freedom. Uh, and it, as I take the longer term approach, uh, you know, I see, um, and, and here, of course, we are including the later work of historians, uh, I think conservatives and liberals were united in uh, having um, interests in describing these precedents, the Griswold to Roe precedents, as sexually libertarian and uh, sexually egalitarian. Um, uh, liberals did so because they wanted to uh, preserve the precedents. They want to defend these precedents. Of course, it later became incredibly important to defend Roe versus Wade, the abortion rights precedent. Uh, and they didn't want to uh, generally cast doubt on the limitations of these rulings. They wanted to celebrate the liberalism of the Warren court and their early Burger court. Um, so I think their interest in exaggerating the liberalism of the Supreme Court's decisions um, may be clear. Conservatives uh, had their own reasons. They essentially wanted to demonize the Warren Court and early Burger Court. And there was no better way to do that than to present the Supreme Court's decisions as sexually radical, as sexually mm. um, transgressive. Uh, and so we end up getting uh, kind of a convergence of uh, self-interest on the left and the right of the American political spectrum in historical narratives that exaggerate the uh, sexual liberalism of these uh, decisions. Uh, and, um, and uh, you know, I think those, those mutual investments have helped perpetuate the myth of the Supreme Court's sexual liberalism in the second half of the 60s and early 70s. Uh, great. Well, thank you so much for being on the uh, the program today, Mark. That was a really interesting discussion. I think we just have one more question to ask you, which is, what are you working on now? I think you've just published a new book. Uh, yeah, that's right. Actually, um, the Sexual Injustice book came out uh, in 2010. I followed that up pretty quickly with a third book called Rethinking the Gay and Lesbian Movement. It was published by Rutledge in 2012, and it's a general uh, survey of the gay and lesbian movement from the 1950s through about uh, 1990. So uh, looking at those um, four decades of gay and lesbian political activism. Uh, and uh, most recently, though, I published a fourth book. Uh, it's called The Stonewall Riots, A Documentary History. Um, as we've been moving towards the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots in New York City in 1969, uh, I thought it was time for a new book. And we have uh, two 
you know, quite good narrative histories of the Stonewall riots, one by Martin Duberman and one by uh, David Carter. So um, in my book, in my new book uh, published by NYU Press, I tried to do something different. So it's basically a primary source reader. It puts together uh, 20, uh, 200 um, primary source documents um, from before, during, and after the Stonewall riots, the period 1965 to 1973. So I keep seeming to come back to exactly that period, the same years I covered in my Supreme Court book. Um, and uh, um, media accounts, uh, accounts from gay bar guides, some court decisions, um, some other kinds of sources that allow us to um, think about what exactly happened um, in the summer, in the spring and summer of 1969 in New York City, and more broadly, what happened in the United States in the years leading up to Stonewall, uh, at the Stonewall moment, and in the subsequent uh, four years. Great. Well, that sounds uh, super interesting. Uh, thank you very much again for being on the program. Thanks very much for the invitation and the conversation. <laughs>